Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for our time. Thank You for breath and life and that You don't leave us in the darkness. God, thank You for this church, the people that You have drawn here, the people that You may be drawing here, God. Thank You for this moment to come and to be in Your presence. And I, I just pray, God, that we, we see it that way, that we are in Your presence, that You are among us, Pray what we are doing is pleasing to You and acceptable before You. God, in Your mercy, I pray that You would change us and transform us. Speak to us and give us ears to hear. Protect us from the distractions that the enemy might bring to cause our minds to wander or our hearts to go off the path. God, I pray that we will be challenged today by Your Word, encouraged by Your Word, that we will find life in it. I ask that You would anoint this preaching. And I pray, God, that You would give me good words to say about Your Word and that You would protect me and the people here from Anything I would say that would be an error or unhelpful. May your words stand and not return void. In Jesus' name, amen. This is directly connected to last week's parable. The parable of the talents. It's an extension of it. Jesus moves directly from the parable of the talents into this passage of Scripture. This is really not a parable. It's not a story that Jesus is sharing to teach some truth. Rather, it is a prophecy of what is coming. A description of what that will look like when He returns. And He he tells the story in a way that we can understand. When the Son of Man comes in His glory. If you were here last week for the parable of talents, or if you would go back and listen to that at some point, that whole parable is based on a master leaving and then returning. And it is a picture of Jesus returning to the Father, entrusting certain things to us, resources and capabilities that we are to use to advance His kingdom and multiply what is His, and then He will return and call us to give an account for what He gave us. This is the description of what that moment will look like. When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, He will sit on His glorious throne. Make no mistake, the last time people on this earth visibly saw Jesus, He was meek, and humble, and a servant. Many of them saw Him publicly shamed, stripped of perhaps all or most of His clothes, beaten, bloodied, pierced, spit on, cursed at. He will not return that way. When He comes back, it will be in glory And everyone will see Him as the King of everything. 
And he will sit on his throne and all nations will be gathered before him. And he will separate them one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. That's an illustration we can understand. If someone owned land, they were a farmer, they had a pasture and they put in that pasture sheep and goats, they would let them graze side by side. But just because they graze side by side do not mean they're the same animal. They're not. They're very distinct from one another. And there are times where a shepherd had to separate them and make a distinction. And Jesus is saying that in this day that we live, as people hear this word, the godly and the ungodly live together side by side. We graze, if you will, upon creation. But make no mistake about it, there is a distinct difference between godly and ungodly. And we are not always great judges of that. But one day Jesus will make a distinction between all people and it will be a final distinction. Today, an ungodly person has the opportunity to cry out to Jesus and be saved and be transformed. But in this moment, when Jesus sits on his throne, there is no returning from that distinction. What he says about us in that moment is final. There's no repentance there's no changing it. And let me say before we go any further that what I am saying to you, preaching what Jesus said, is completely despised in our culture. The idea that there is a distinction between people into godly and ungodly, the idea that if there is a God that He makes a distinction between people, is completely despised in our culture. The idea that there is a God that will one day separate people to life and to death, to honor and to dishonor, is a stench in the nostrils of our society, of our world. And we are told that is unfair, unjust. And we can't do anything about that. That is the way the world has always reacted to that message. The issue that we have is that that message has also infiltrated the church. Not in every congregation or in every denomination, but there is among people who say they are Christians either an outright denial of a distinction and a coming judgment, or at a minimum, we are ashamed of that message. We know it doesn't play well in culture, and we don't want to share it, and we don't want to talk about it. So we hide from it. The problem with that is Scripture says the church of the living God is the foundation and the pillar of truth. And if we are not holding up the truth of what is coming, no one will. If we do not tell and share 
with people we encounter in our family and our friends, this moment that is unavoidable, there is no one to tell them about it. So as one theologian said, and I put this in your notes, church, beware of any doctrine that teaches a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministry or the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. Because that is what is happening in many segments of Christianity today. And it is not the gospel. This moment, human history is barreling toward this. It is going to occur. No amount of denial will change that. Jesus will return and He will separate all people. And He will separate them to life or He will separate them into death. But He will not make that separation. He will not make that distinction randomly. That distinction will be based on one thing. And contrary to what might happen if you just do a cursory reading of this text, it's not works. It's not, it's not just what you do in this life. Jesus intends for us to understand what He is saying here in context of all the teaching of the New Testament and what He shares with us. It's not works. Look at verse 46. They... Those who are on His left, they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. So this separation is righteous and unrighteous. And righteousness is not earned by what you do. Rather, it is earned in the gospel, if I can use that term, by what you believe. If you're a note taker, if you have a copy of a worship guide for this morning. Let's start with this life truth. We are heading to a moment when Jesus will separate all of humanity to life. And I put there to joy, eternal joy, or to death, and with it eternal suffering apart from Christ. And this final distinction will be based on belief or unbelief in the gospel belief or unbelief you are not saved or lost by works by did you do enough good things or not enough good things you are saved or lost by your belief in the gospel or your rejection of the gospel belief is what saves you What you believe about how this earth came to existence that you would believe that there is a creator of all things and that that creator is perfect. And he created us, but we failed to live in his perfection. That He gives laws and commands and ways that we should conduct ourselves that would be honoring to Him and would be 
in His image because that's how He created us. Yet, we failed to meet that standard. And that when you look at your life, you can say, I know that I am not perfect. I know that I do not meet the standard of God. I know that I do wrong things. I do things that are unhelpful and hurtful to me and to others. I know that I do not live up to the perfection of the God that created everything. And a belief that God, in His mercy, sent someone, His Son, Jesus, to live on this earth and to live to that standard. That Jesus did that. That He lived a incredible life, glorious and perfect in every way. He felt temptation. The sting of temptation that we feel, the things that we feel coming upon us, Jesus felt that. But He didn't give in. He lived perfectly. He loved God perfectly. He loved people perfectly. But the end of His life was not the reward of that perfection. The end of His life was a cross reserved for murderers and criminals and sinners. But He didn't die on that cross because of what He had earned. He stepped in front of a bullet coming for our hearts. We were staring down the barrel and He walked in front of it on our behalf. And in the power of God, He was resurrected and He lives today. And if you believe that, what it causes you to do is cling to Jesus. Abide with Him. In your heart and your mind, you say, that's who I need to be with. He's the one who did it right. He's the one who faced sin and didn't give in. He's the one who conquered death. That is who I must attach my life to. And so that's what you do. And it will be imperfect, but you cling to Him and abide with Him. And one day, when you see Him, He will acknowledge you. By your name, He will say, He, she clung to me in faith. And His life was so glorious and His sacrifice so acceptable that when the Son looks to the Father and points at you and says, they're mine, that is all God needs to hear. And you are forgiven. Eternally considered righteous. That is what saves you. That is what makes the distinction between the sheep and the goats. 
those who believed and those who rejected. That message. And the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. You will inherit a kingdom that God had planned to give you, called by name, before He ever began creating this world. But what I want us to understand and what helps explain this text to us in your notes is this belief is proven by good works. When you believe this way, it looks like something. There is evidence of belief. It's proven and it's proven by good works. God's work in your life to enable you to believe the gospel and cling to Christ and the gift of His Spirit to come and live in you when you do believe, that that work that God does is so deep, it's so core, it is so transformative that it will produce out of you certain good works. Not just good works that you come up with, but certain good works that are of the same character and the same nature as Jesus. You will begin to look more like Him. Because God is changing your heart to be more like Him, to want more of Jesus, and to live as He lived. And so that is where Jesus is able to say to those on His right in the place of honor that the presence of these good works prove that you believed. And to those on His left in the place of dishonor, the absence of these good works show you didn't believe. Works don't produce salvation, they prove salvation. And so, throughout the New Testament, you can find good works mentioned. All different kinds of good works. All different kinds of the character of the Spirit and actions that come from salvation. But in this passage that we're looking at today, in Matthew 25, Jesus has a very specific type of good work in mind. He is presenting to us something very specific and saying, this will be seen in those who believe and it will not be seen in those who do not believe. So look at verse 34. The king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world for I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you took care of me. I was in prison, and you visited me. And the Bible says the people that are listening to this, they're confused. Jesus, this is the first time I'm seeing you with my eyes. Like, I've loved you, I've, I've clinged to you, but this is the first time I've ever seen you. When were you hungry and I fed you? When were you thirsty and I gave you something to drink? When did I see you as a stranger and take you in or without clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? Look at verse 40 because this is the key to all of it. This is the good work. 
The king will answer them. Jesus will say, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. I want you to note there, he did not say whatever you did for all people. He said whatever you did for these brothers and sisters of mine. Who are the brothers and sisters of Jesus? Christians. What he is talking about is how we love the church. What he is talking about here is how we care for other believers. Now, are we to care for all people? Yes, in a way, absolutely. The New Testament says, do good to all as you have the ability. But then it says, especially in the household of God. And what is clear in verse 40 is the good work that Jesus is saying, you did and proved your belief was you cared for my people. You cared for my church. You took care of them, especially the least among my people. You cared for them. And that is the good work that is absent in those on his left. You did not care for other believers. You did not care for the church. So in your notes, this good work, how belief proves good works, or is proven by good works, the good work that Jesus is talking about is a deep care for fellow believers. A care and concern for fellow Christians. For the health of the church, both spiritual and physical. And this is exactly what John, John who heard Jesus say these things later, many decades later, John would write in one of his letters, 1 John chapter 2. John, perhaps remembering this, would say to the church, very plain and very pointed words, if someone claims to walk with Jesus and hates another believer, they are actually stumbling in the darkness and they are blind. They are not who they think they are in Christ if they hate another believer. Because if you love Christ, you cannot hate His church. So, the good work Jesus is putting before us is care for one another. Care for believers. Care for the church. What kind of care is He talking about? I think it's two different kinds. First of all, it is a care that is proven by love, forgiveness, peace, and concern for spiritual needs. If we truly care for each other, it is care that will be proven by our love for one another, our forgiveness of one another, our peace among one another, and our overall concern for each other's spiritual well-being. The base concern that we should have in this church is that everyone here knows and walks with Jesus. You, you may not all get along personality-wise. You may not all know each other very well. You may be in different seasons of life and, and, and you may 
have different interests, but the base concern that all of us are to have for one another is we should care that each of us are walking close to Jesus. We should have a deep concern for that. And if we see that within the church someone is not walking close with Jesus, that should grieve us and we should want to try and help. That's what Paul would say in Colossians 3. Put on, church, things like compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And if we have a grievance against each other, even a valid one, Release one another as the Lord has released you. That's how we care for each other's spiritual needs. We put on these things. We pray for compassion. We're kind to one another. We're gentle with one another. We're patient with each other. We know God is sanctifying all of us. So yes, we're going to struggle at times. We're going to offend each other at times because we're all to some level spiritually immature and trying to grow. And there's going to be times we're going to grieve one another. There's going to be times where you're going to have a valid grievance that someone in the church in the congregation has done to you. And we're not just simply saying it's no big deal, but Jesus is saying, I've forgiven you of all of your grievances, so forgive each other. I release you, release them. We want spiritual health in this church. We desire unity and peace because we can't help each other become more like Jesus if we despise one another. We can't help each other grow and become more like Christ if we're angry with one another. There's a passage in, I think it's Hebrews, that tells the church to live in such a way that your leaders and those who are over you in the Lord will not find it a burden to, to lead and serve, but they will find it a joy. And I say that because I want you to know I find it a joy to be your pastor, one of your pastors. It is not a burden. What God has done here, this, this is an incredible group of people. But we are not perfect. And I will call a spade a spade. There are times where there's divisions among us. There are times where there are hurt feelings among us. There are times where we're at odds with one another. Sometimes I know about those because we're not big enough that I wouldn't know that. Sometimes I don't. So here's what I want to say to you. And I want to say it to you on the authority of this word. If it's coming from me, who cares? If you are at odds with anyone in this congregation, you are commanded by Jesus to resolve it. It is not a suggestion that He is making. It is not a hope that He has. 
He has given us a command. Love and forgive each other and seek peace. And if you disagree with that because you think I'm making it up, But I'm saying that because the Word says that. It's not a good thing to do one day. It is a command to do now. And maybe there's nothing like that right now. And in your mind, it's like, I don't know what he's talking about. I'm good with everybody. Awesome. You might need this in six months. But if in your mind you go, huh, I wonder if he's talking about, then I probably am. <laughs> Care that is proven by concern for spiritual needs, but there's another type of care. It is care that is proven by sacrificial provision to meet practical needs. Care that is proven by sacri sacrificial provision to meet practical needs. It is the good works of easing each other's suffering. I love what Lamar said. Man, that was incredible. He got it exactly right. This is all tied to love for God and love for one another. And yes, we glorify God by helping one another. Man, there's been some needs here recently. I've seen people doing big acts of generosity. It's incredible to see. And it's, it's all about God. And it's glorifying to Him when it happens. It's what John said to us in 1 John 3, that same letter. He tells the church, Jesus laid down His life for us. We should also lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. If anyone has the world's goods and they see a fellow believer in need, but they withhold compassion from him, how does God's love reside in him? John says, yeah, if you have it and someone in the church of the living God needs it and you withhold it, is God's love in you? He asked that question. And it's what Jesus is saying. You could, look at the, you could look at what Jesus said either spiritually or physically. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. We hunger and thirst spiritually, so we care for each other's spiritual well-being, and we hunger and thirst physically, and we want to make sure that each other, that we have enough. That there's no one here going hungry. No one here going thirsty. I was a stranger and you took me in. And we show hospitality to one another. We go to the least of these in the church. We go to the people that feel disconnected. We go to the people on the fringe. We bring them in. They may be a stranger to us. We invite them in. I remember, <laughs> I remember three years ago, January of 2020, standing here with this incredible idea that I felt like God had gave me. And I challenged the church. Over the course of the next 12 months, invite at least three families into your home that you do not know. And two months later, everyone said, go home and don't go around anybody. What I said then, I think, still stands. 
Yeah, invite the people you know, the people you love. Invite the ones you don't. Invite them in. Those without enough clothes, we, we clothe them. Those who are sick, we find ways to take care of them. I was in prison, maybe prison for the gospel, maybe losing a job because of the gospel, some kind of captivity, or the prison of emotional distress and depression. We go to them, we visit them, we help them. The point is, to all of this, what Jesus is saying is, we help carry each other's burdens. Whether you feel disconnected or you don't have enough money to buy groceries. And Jesus is so serious about this. He so closely ties love for Him with love for each other that He says, when you do this for one another, you are doing it to Me. Because, like Lamar said, love for God, just like it. Love for each other. The Spirit of Christ is in all of us. So when we help each other, when we love each other, when we care for each other, we are doing it to Jesus. And look at what He said in verse 45 to those on His left. Truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for Me. When we don't care for one another, we are not caring for Jesus. Man, there, there, yes, there is a Christianity. There is a thought process in the churches. I love Jesus. I just don't like community. I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. He doesn't give us that option. You, you can't do that. If we love Him, we love each other. We must love each other because He is in us. So when we take care of each other, we are taking care of Him. When we don't take care of each other, we are ignoring Him. So Agape, if you take anything away from today, care for one another as worship of Jesus. Let go of hurts. Release each other. Work for peace. Don't Gossip, don't criticize, don't cause harm. Love, 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 love. Care for one another. You're doing it for Jesus. You criticize someone that Jesus is in, Jesus takes that as an offense on Himself. Care for each other. Love each other. I'm really at the end, but I, I don't want to leave this picture in this coming judgment, without also thinking about how this reality must call us to consider those who do not know Christ. We're sitting here, we're talking about the importance of the church and love in the church and health in the church, but there are those who are not in the church. Human history is barreling to this moment. Every person you know, every person you meet, Every person you work with, in your family, your friends, every person that you may have a five-minute encounter with, one day they will stand in this moment and Jesus will direct them to one of two groups. And one of the good works that prove our salvation, in your notes, is a faithfulness to advance, excuse me, a faithfulness to invest in advancing the kingdom.
a faithfulness to invest in advancing the kingdom so that many might be saved from eternal suffering. And I wanted to say that because I just want to make sure we connect this back to last week in the parable of the talents. And if you didn't have a chance to listen to that, if you haven't heard it, please go back and listen. And not because I think it is some incredible sermon I preach, because I think the text is so important. That what it teaches us is that Jesus has given every single one of us, He has apportioned to every single one of us certain abilities. And He gives us certain opportunities. And those abilities and opportunities combine to give us the chance to advance His kingdom. To multiply what is His. And if we truly know Jesus, our desire should be faith to be faithful to what He has given us. And every one of you, you are uniquely in Christ gifted and apportioned certain resources that you are to use to advance His kingdom. And He wants you to be faithful in that. Here's the question, I'm going to end on this, but here's here's the question I ask myself. Because I, I believe God wants us to advance His kingdom. What I often wrestle with was, how much should I desire this church to advance and grow in number? Because, honestly, numeric growth is a trap many pastors fall into. And there are times where they get so fascinated and fixed on that that it becomes the goal of what they're doing. And every ministry and every activity and every outreach becomes, it has the goal of expansion. And I I think that's wrong. Or at least many times the heart behind it is wrong. But I've also, as I have wrestled with this over time, come to the conclusion that growth isn't something to run from. Because when I look at the design of God's creation, healthy things grow. Things that are operating as they should, they they grow. So I think we should desire growth, but not as an end. I think we should desire growth as a byproduct of being a church that is faithful to its master. So I wanted to end with a picture from Acts 2. In Acts 2, we see this incredible view of an early church congregation. And you can read these passages later, verse 42 through 47. I I urge you to do that. But what we're told is that that early church was devoted to two things. First, the worship of God. The apostles teaching the word, prayers, ordinances of worship. They were devoted to that. And secondly, they were devoted to caring for each other. Spiritually and practically. And so when Luke describes the early church, he says they praise God together. They worshiped together. Sometimes they would go to the temple and do it corporately. Sometimes they would go house to house to house. But they would worship together. They looked for opportunities to do that. They fellowshiped around the Word. And if someone was in need, they would sell their stuff to meet that need. That's how serious they were about their love for one another. And as they did those things... 
in that passage we are told they gained favor with all people. Outsiders. So what you see is that the love they had for God and the love they had for each other was spilling over to the lost. And this short passage about the early church ends with this statement. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. So in your notes, it seems to me that God is willing, and I almost put there that He is pleased to grow a church that cares for one another and takes an interest in the hurting. Takes an interest in them by praying for them and serving them that they might draw near Christ. Agape, I want us to grow. But my vision for that is not for us to focus on growing. I think if we will cherish God together and set our hearts to abide in Christ in increasing measure, and if we will work to care for one another, forgive one another, love one another, serve one another, stop doing anything that promotes division, help bring about peace, And if we will look for opportunities that God gives us to use our abilities to advance His kingdom, I am banking on my trust in God that He will add to our number. As He sees fit. If we are not a place that loves Him and loves one another, we have no guarantees. Why would He add numbers to a place that that doesn't do that. Love God. I, I it'd be silly, but I, I could come right here and I'll say it to all of us, right? Set down the distractions. Get off the phones. Love God. Get into His Word. Pray. Change your life, your schedule to give yourself, to devote yourself to Him. Love each other. Let it go. I'm not saying it's not important, but it's not as important as the day of seeing Jesus. It's, it's, it's not as important as withholding love from Jesus because Jesus is in each of us. Care for each other. Forgive one another. And watch us grow. Because I think He'll add to that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up and lead us in singing. And as I do, I want to make one last question to you. One day this picture will happen. Christ will gather the nations and He will separate the groups. Church, here's my question. Do you know which group you stand in? Do you know that you have given yourself 
in belief to Christ and that you are clinging to Him for salvation and forgiveness of sins. And on that day, He will say, Mine. And if you don't know that, if you have doubts about that, I implore you, I beg you, don't leave here today without sharing that with someone. Me or Nick or Sam. If you come share it with me, I'll set a time to talk with you. We don't work to be saved. But our works show our hearts. Father, thank You for Your Word. God, help us to grow. Not to be the biggest or the best. God, we're not going to captivate anyone by our building, our amenities, our property. God, would You, would you bless this place with love for You and love for each other? That when people walk in, they recognize that. And that we are not, we don't get glory because of our wisdom, because of what we've built or what we've done. But God, you get glory because you are calling a people together to love you and love each other. God, give us the ability to be faithful to you and to love you and to seek peace and to be that fellowship of the saints that has favor with all people not because we compromise but because we love and God let us be found worthy of you adding to our number that you may be glorified that you may be honored God give us opportunities to use our abilities let us not be unfaithful save us if we are lost sanctify us God if we are yours in Jesus name we want to sing together we want to pray together got prayer partners that are going to come to my left if you want to pray about anything anything physical, mental, emotional, spiritual come and be prayed for if you want to talk about your relationship with Jesus let me know Let's respond to God. Let's pray. Let's worship. Amen.